Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Before we get stuck into the podcast today, I just wanted to explain that we're talking about launching, and people often think that launching is maybe a week or two weeks or maybe a month of frenetic activity where you're trying to get people to book onto an online course or a membership or buy a product that's available for a limited time only. And I just wanted to say from the get-go that that is not how I perceive launching. I think after quite a few failed attempts and a few successful ones too, that launching really is a six-month endeavour. And I know that might be a bit eye-watering. If you've got something that you're really excited about and you want to get it off the ground right now, it might seem a bit like you don't have six months to spend. But actually, if you're realistic about launching something online and you don't already have an audience that knows, likes and trusts you, six months is what it's going to take to go from having your idea and testing it out with a few people who are in your sort of target audience to getting that idea to the point where it's profitable and you might actually make some money from it. So I want to take you into this episode um, feeling excited about launching, but also realistic that it is quite a long process. Now, I know that it's also a bit of an overwhelming thing. And this podcast episode is talking you through 14 steps. So after I recorded it, I had a little think and I thought that I would create a checklist to go with it. So there is a visual resource that goes with this so that you can work through it at your own pace and you don't need to feel overwhelmed by everything that you've got to do. So it's 14 steps to a simple launch and I will put the link so that you can download it and work through it at your own pace in the show notes. So there's no drama, it's just a nice, simple checklist to take you through your first launch. And now on with the show. Today, I want to talk to you all about launching. Now, a launch can seem really, really daunting. And when you're wanting to put out a new product and a new service into the world, it can feel like, where on earth do I start with getting this in front of the people that need it? So what I've done is I've broken down the launch process that I followed for the Do More Than Therapy membership into around 14 steps. Now, you can do a much more complicated launch than this, and you can do a simpler one. But I thought I'd share the process that I used because I basically cherry-picked from the launch strategies of lots of experts and found strategies which were possible to implement alongside running quite a busy uh, psychology and therapy private practice. And the ones that sat the best with me as a psychologist and fit with the way that I view the products and the services that I'm creating as something that's in the interest of the community rather than just about making money. So my launch strategy is perhaps a bit more simple than some of the gurus that you could listen to. Um, And I completely recommend that once you 
feel comfortable with your strategy that you can then add to that all the bells and the whistles and all the amazing things that people like Amy Porterfield, um, Janet Murray, all these really impressive marketing people do. You can absolutely do all of that, um, but you can't do all of that right now while you're still running a busy therapy practice. Um, So these are the 14 steps which I think represent a happy medium between very basic and um, all the bells and whistles that you could get suckered in by. Okay, so I'll give you an overview of the 14 steps and then I'll go into a little bit more detail on each one. So step one is all about finding your people. Step two is about talking to your people. Step three is creating something really small to see if they want it. Step four is responding to feedback Step five is creating something a bit bigger and charging for it. Step six is more responding to feedback. You'll see that I really like feedback. Step seven is setting your launch goals and your targets based on your realistic audience size. So steps one to seven, I would expect to take you about three months. Um, so when you get to that fir- the end of that first quarter, that's when I think you're in a good position to set some goals. Step eight Build the audience using the content that you already know does well um, or possibly invest in some paid advertising at this point. Step nine, getting to know, engaging with and being curious about the people in your audience. Step 10, introducing your product or service to your audience and asking for lots and lots more feedback while you refine it. Step 11, holding an event or a challenge or a webinar or some kind of um, really engaged taster of what your service or product is going to be like. Step 12, giving them an opportunity to buy for a set period of time. So when you're starting out with something, it's not a great idea to have it on Evergreen where people can join all the time. There's a few reasons for that and I'll talk about those when we get to it. Step 13, showing them the benefits of your product and service using testimonials, using emails and reminding people about your offer. And final step, step 14, absolutely crucial, evaluating what you've done. Okay, so let's go back and think about all of those steps in a little bit more depth. Firstly, finding your people. And by this, I mean the specific people, the people who you want to help with your product and service. You need to think about where they actually hang out. So if you're trying to reach parents of children with autism, for example, think about whether they are on Facebook, whether they're on Instagram, whether they're on Twitter, or whether they're people that are better reached by personal outreach on LinkedIn, whether they're more likely to Google for your product or service, or whether you're more likely to find them through face-to-face networking. This can actually be really tough and requires a bit of testing. So you might find that there are loads of Facebook support groups in existence for the kind of people that you're trying to reach, but you might not be allowed in them as a professional rather than somebody that's in that group. And if that's the case, then reach out to the admins. If you know that your people are on Facebook, but you can't reach them on Facebook, then just reach out, reach out to the people that can reach them. 
see if they want somebody to guest in their Facebook group. They might really welcome a Facebook Live from you where you're offering free value to their people. And in exchange for that, they might be willing to let you um, ask the people in their Facebook group whether they'd be interested in joining yours. There are lots of ways in, but it is absolutely crucial at the very beginning of your journey to locate your people and just focus on the area where you think you're going to get the most traction. So for example, with the Do More Than Therapy community, I I know that most of you listening to this podcast probably do use Facebook and you probably do use Instagram. But Facebook and Instagram don't make it very easy for me to find psychologists and therapists. LinkedIn does. So my main strategy for getting people into the Facebook group when I started out was personal outreach on LinkedIn, inviting people to join. And they would then invite their friends and other people they thought might be interested. Now, as time has gone on, I have been able to develop what's called a lookalike audience on Facebook. So I now can do a bit more Facebook outreach. And I've managed to make contact with lots of admins of groups who've allowed me to advertise my group in their group. So I'm now able to utilize Facebook a bit better. But at the beginning, I didn't have that traction. So I just focused all of my energy on LinkedIn. And that worked really, really well. You've only got a set number of hours in the day. So there is absolutely no point in trying to do all of the social media platforms. Pick one where you think your audience hang out the most and do that one really, really well. Another thing to say is that there are some products and services which I just do not believe you will get very far with using social media. Google, if if somebody is likely to Google the thing, uh, the problem that you're solving, then use Google Ads instead. I think often we can be really attracted by all the adverts on social media telling us that social media is the only place to advertise. Actually, there are some problems that you might be solving that people are much more likely to type into a search engine. People, when they're on Google, they are actually looking to to buy or hire a service. Uh, When people are on social media, they're there to socialize. So you've always got that hurdle to overcome first. If it is something that they might search for, definitely look at Google Ads. Second step, talk to your people, learn their pain points and their language. I just can't emphasize this enough. It's basically it's service user involvement. It's exactly what we would ideally see in our clinical services, but we often don't. And to be frank, this is the most common mistake that I see other psychologists and therapists making. It's the biggest mistake that I made at the beginning of my journey. We're actually not very good at hearing what people tell us. We're not very good at hearing the language that they use. We might not like their language about the difficulty that they're dealing with. A great example of this is I don't like the language that people use often around challenging behaviour. Um, that was what I specialised in when I worked in the NHS. And there are pati- I don't even like the term challenging behaviour, if I'm honest. And in a conversation with me, you wouldn't be likely to hear me talking about your child's challenging behaviour or a person with learning disabilities challenging behaviour because I despise that being located within the individual. I hate it. But 
that is more the language that you will hear professionals in education or parents using about challenging behavior. And you have to learn to meet people where they're at. Because if you come in two steps ahead of where they are in their thinking right now, they're just going to switch off from you. They're not going to hear your message at all and you're not going to help them. And that thinking is never going to shift. So this can be really, really valuable and really, really difficult at the same time. So if you can find the people that you want to help and you can get them into a conversation with you, whether that's in your own group, on your email list, or whether that is um, in somebody else's group, just through commenting and having genuine and open discussions with people, you need to make a note of the language that they're using to describe their problems, what the things they are really struggling with are, what they would say is their biggest pain, not what you think it should be, and then develop some kind of product or service which helps in a small way to solve that problem where they are right now. And that's step three. Step three is creating something for those people that is small, but that they actually want and that gives them a small win, if you like. So that could be a podcast. It could be a blog post. It could be, and this would be the ideal one, um, something downloadable like a checklist or a cheat sheet or a fact sheet um, that solves a quick problem for them. Now, you want to be able to track who downloads it and who uses it. The ideal way to do that is by creating a landing page where somebody has to give you their email to access the content. And then you can use the Facebook Pixel and Google Analytics on those pages to to track who visits the landing page and who gets to the thank you page. And that gives you the best possible data for building your audience. However, it may be that you want to start a bit softer. You want to create something that people don't need to give you their email address to access like a podcast or a blog post because that does tend to get better reach. And when people have no reason to know, like or trust you yet, it can be better to create something like that in the first instance. Um, so you'll see that that's what I did with the Business of Psychology podcast. That was the first thing that I created because it's no commitment. You didn't have to give me anything or trust me to just put this on in your earbuds Um, but you can tell by listening to the podcast whether you like me whether you want to know more from me and whether you might want to download something from me in the future so it can be helpful um, to create something that's what we call like a really soft opt-in people don't need to give you anything to get it in the first instance and you can still track who visits your websites Um, to access that freebie, whether that's a a blog post or a podcast. It's not as easy, it's not as precise, but you can still do it. So I would really recommend starting very small and low commitment and just see if people want what you're offering. It's a good way of testing whether you really have listened to the pain points and the language. Because if you create a podcast or a blog post and nobody that you um, offer it to actually reads it, then you know that you haven't got the language right, that you haven't addressed the right pain point, especially if you're talking to those people all the time. Um, Because if you're in a conversation with them, you can just drop them individually, the link to the podcast or the blog post. And then you can see, does anybody read it? And I think 
often that's quite painful and we need to show ourselves a lot of compassion while we're doing that. Because, I, you know, I've done it so many times. I've created blog posts that nobody has read. And it is usually because I've used some kind of language which just does not resonate with the people that I'm talking to. And that is step four, is responding to the feedback. So I would always recommend if you create something, constantly ask for feedback about it. Because there are some really generous people out there who will tell you, like, oh, the reason that I'm not interested in this is because you use this word and I don't like it. Um, I've I've had feedback like that and it, it is gold dust. It couldn't be more valuable. But even if you don't get that many people who are willing to give you their time in that way, to give you that feedback, um, you can tell from their behavior whether something hits the mark or misses it. So I really recommend getting to grips with Google Analytics. Google actually provide amazing free training on that. Um, if you just type in how to use Google Analytics, you'll get videos which walk you through it. If you get to know your Google Analytics, you can see how long people are staying on your blog post for, um, which will tell you whether they're actually reading it or not. So if loads of people come to your blog post, but they will leave within 30 seconds, you can tell that your content wasn't engaging for some reason. If nobody comes to your blog post, you can tell that your title wasn't engaging for some reason. So there's loads of ways of getting feedback. Um, and it's important to be constantly asking it, even when all you've created is is free content so far. Now, once you've got all of that feedback and you've had those conversations with the people who are in your audience, you want to create something a bit bigger. And this is where I would really recommend charging for it. So say you might want to create something which is very low cost to start with, maybe an ebook or a bigger downloadable or maybe even a place on a base course that you're going to run live over a few weeks or a challenge where they'll get Zoom calls with you over a few weeks in a small group. Whatever it is, it's very important that it meets the needs of the people based on the feedback that you've had so far. Um, for me, I did the crowdfunder at this point where I offered founding membership for what I knew would be quite a small group of people because I knew I only had a very small audience at that point. Um, but it felt manageable. I could offer the monthly masterclasses and I could offer the peer supervision to that small group and I knew I could serve them well because it wasn't going to be a huge group. So I just charged the bare minimum to cover the expenses for that period of time um, in order to see whether people were willing to part with any money for it. Because there are problems out there that people genuinely have, they're really struggling with, but they aren't willing to part with any money to solve them. And that is such a complicated issue. It can be because society has told them that they shouldn't be spending money on that problem. That's something I've encountered a lot when it comes to the perinatal mental health space. Um, it may be that society has told them that they shouldn't be prioritising it in terms of time. So they're not willing to make a time commitment to it. There are loads of issues, but you won't identify any of those until you put a price tag on something, because that is when people will start to give you feedback like, I really want to do this, but I can't for X, Y and Z. Or, of course, you might still get the feedback that you've missed the mark slightly with your language. Um 
But this is when you, you start to get that really useful feedback about whether this is going to be a viable part of your business or not. So it does take quite a long time to even get to that point. Um, obviously, depending on where you're at right now, you might be able to zoom through steps one to five. Uh, but for me, I know it took me a few months to even get to step five um, because it's I didn't want to, and I definitely recommend that you don't launch in putting a lot of work behind something before you've really got to know your audience and tested out some free content on them. And once that free content is doing well and you can see what they engage with and what they enjoy, then you create something slightly bigger that you're charging for. I can't emphasize enough how much groundwork you need to do before you can start thinking about charging people for things. So three steps, one to five, it's all about getting a group of people together who need what you're planning to offer and getting talking to them. And I just want to, before we move on, emphasize that that can be through your email list. It can be through a Facebook group. It can be through um, a LinkedIn group. I'm not really, I don't know much about those, but it can be. It could be through an Instagram community. But I really would recommend that alongside whatever you're doing, you are building an email list. And the reason for that is that you don't own any of your social platforms and they could be taken away at any moment. Facebook is quite good at shutting down accounts if it thinks that you've broken a rule. Unfortunately, it is bots that determine whether you've broken a rule or not. And especially when you're in the mental health space, the bots are very, very trigger happy. Now, obviously, you can usually get your account restarted quite quickly because Facebook knows that it's got bots um, doing these things, but it can mean that you're out of action for a couple of weeks. So if your entire audience is on Facebook and you don't have any other way of contacting them, that can hugely derail your launch. So steps one to five, get your group together of people that need your stuff and make sure that you've got their emails as well as their Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn. So once you've created something a bit bigger and you've charged for it, and I know there might be a few people right now being like, right, well, okay, so I can create something a bit bigger, um, but how on earth do I go about charging for it? It can be really, really simple. So you can set up a really simple landing page. I would pay somebody to do it if you've got a really busy private practice. If you've got the spare time to do it, you can build it yourself. Um, there are people that will show you how to do that. There's a membership that you can join uh, that I think is really good, um, which I'll put the link to in the show notes where they'll teach you how to build a really basic site on your own. Um, personally, I just paid somebody to do that. You can stick a PayPal button on extremely easily. Um, and you can start taking payment and testing whether this is a viable part of your business. So don't get caught up in the tech. Um, you can pay somebody to do it all for you for about £100 if, if it's just a very straightforward one page. So you really don't need to get hung up on that. If you've already got a website, just adding a page to your website couldn't be simpler. Um, but even if you don't, just that one page landing page is not going to be a big drama. Step six is yet more responding to feedback. So you're going to get bored of hearing me say this, but at this point, if people are paying for something from you, 
then you should be having quite a lot more contact with them. So what I do is when somebody joins my email list, I have a sequence of emails that goes out to them recommending blog posts that I think they might find useful, podcast episodes that I think they might find helpful, and just giving them a bit of an introduction to me and the other people in my team so that they feel like they're getting to know me a little bit and asking them, crucially, asking them questions about what they need help with, how I can be of service to them and asking for their feedback on the blog posts and the podcast episodes that I've recommended. That is really, really valuable. And I would fully recommend, if you can, adding into that automated sequence of emails. I do mine through ConvertKits. I pay for that. You can do it for free through something like MailChimp. But I would also add a little bit of personal outreach at that point. If you can reach out to those people and say, do you know, would you mind, could we have a Zoom call so that I could talk to you about, you know, where you hang out online so I can find out where more people like you might be that might need my help. Um, And if I can talk to you about the service that you're getting from me, how I could make it better, how I could tailor it to meet your needs, you'll actually find quite a lot of people will take you up on it. And that's because at this stage, you are genuinely trying to build what they need. And most people will recognize that if they talk to you, you're more likely to create a product that fits them perfectly. It's actually a really great opportunity and you can only do it while you're quite early in your project. Once you get bigger and you've got loads of people accessing your services, you're not going to be able to offer that to every single person. But if you're in the beginning and you've only got a mailing list of a few hundred, then you can offer that to everybody and you won't be overwhelmed by the number of people that take you up on it. So for an example, I've offered that to the people on the Do More Than Therapy um, mailing list and I've had about 15 people take me up on it and the mailing list is I think about 500 people now. So that's the kind of ratio you can expect. 15 30 minute zoom calls for the value that that has given me that has been a thousand percent worth the time um so i i really recommend that getting feedback in whatever way you possibly can so then you've got to actually respond to it you've got to change what you're offering in line with the feedback so often we get fused with and wedded to the idea that we went in with But as I've been saying all the way through, being flexible and responding to what people actually want is totally crucial. Now for the fun bit. Now you're at the point where you can set some goals for your launch. So up until now, you've been building a basic audience. Before you've got an audience, in my view, you can't set your launch goals and your targets because you don't have an idea of what's realistic. But now you've built up a bit of an audience. You've got a mailing list and you've got an audience on social media. So all you need to do to calculate your audience size is add together the people you've got on your mailing list, plus your social media followers, plus podcast listeners or blog post visitors. Add all of that together and you can expect one to 2% of your overall audience size to convert to become paying customers. Now, I would caveat that. So you'll only get 1% to 2% even if they are an engaged audience who are truly the people who will benefit from your product and service. 
So if you're really early on and you've got maybe 50 people following your Facebook page, but you know deep down that 30 of those are just your friends and family, you can't expect even 1% of those people to convert. It does need to be an audience made of the people who will really benefit from whatever you're offering. So you have to be very honest with yourself at this stage. I would also say that if your audience are very highly engaged and you've created something that completely fits what they need, you might get a much higher conversion. So as I said, the um, Do Modern Therapy mailing list is actually, it's less than 500 people. I think it's like 470. Um, But I managed to convert about 40 people. So we've got 40 people in the membership on this launch. So obviously that's much better than a 1% to 2% conversion rate. Um, But I believe that's because people have been really, really engaged and there's not much else like the Do More Than Therapy membership out there. Um, I get a lot of people talking to me via emails. I get a lot of people talking to me on social media, lots of private messages, Um, I've had lots of Zoom calls with people. So I've had a lot of feedback and I've been able to refine the messaging. And of course, there's a lot more that I could do with that. Um, But I think, you know, just in terms of what we can expect from an audience, when I've created products and services for clinical populations, uh, like the perinatal mental health stuff that I've offered, it has converted at one to two percent at best sometimes lower if I've not got my messaging quite right. So it's just a bit of a reality check here. And I think that's very important because the goals that you set yourself will determine how much you invest in terms of money on paid advertising and in terms of your time. So if you know that your audience is only going to bring you, you know, maybe a maximum of 10 people at this stage, then you don't want to be spending loads and loads of money on this launch um, because you haven't got much of a chance of getting more people um, in order to cover the costs of that. So unless actually, if you've got money in the bank, then you can, you know, you might want to invest it anyway. But it is really important to be realistic at this point so that you don't end up in a position where you have a launch which costs you more than you can make from it. So you know what you can expect from your existing audience. The difficult bit is calculating how big that audience might get by the time you launch your product. Because we're still at this point a few months away from actually launching the product or service. So we're going into the launch audience building phase here. And we could expect to add significantly to the audience before the launch date. So what I would do is use your past experience. So how long have you spent building the audience up to this point? And how many people have you managed to get into that audience? And I would expect to do the same again, or maybe slightly better. If you feel like, actually, I've kind of cracked it now, and I'm getting a lot more people into my audience week on week than I was when I started this journey, then you might want to project that you might get more people in the audience. But be conservative at this point. So say over the past three months, you've managed to get your audience to 500 people, then maybe realistically, you could expect to get a 1000 people into that audience by the time you launch your product in three months time. 
So make a realistic projection of how many people you're going to have in your audience by the time you open the cart and allow people to buy your product and service. Now, step eight is about building that audience. So this is about using the content that you already know does well for you because you've already been putting that content out through emails, through social media, through blogging, through podcasting. And it's about taking that content that you already know has done really well and getting it in front of more people. Now, that might involve using paid advertising like Facebook or Google ads to engage new people. Or it might be using um, other people's platforms. So it might be about guesting on podcasts, doing some guest blog writing, teaching in other people's Facebook groups, um, using press coverage, example, for example, to engage a new set of people. Now, I'm using the word engage here because if you do use something like Facebook ads at this point, please, please, please don't try and use a conversion Um, even though you might really want people to buy something from you or download something from you. If they've never met you before, they don't know anything about you, they don't know that you're an expert, I think it makes much, much more sense to engage them. So use the engagement objective to get people commenting on your posts, get people um, watching a video, get people to... um, talk to you rather than asking them completely cold to download something and what Facebook then allows you to do if you use the Facebook pixel is retarget those people who have engaged with you with your next thing so it may be that you set up some Facebook ads at this point that are all about um getting to know you through your videos you just all you want them to do is like or comment on a video um Then further down the line, at a later step, you're going to be holding a free event or providing them with a free download, which is more directly linked to your product or service. What Facebook allows you to do is retarget those people that have already shown an interest in your free Facebook content with ads for your download or for your launch event. So it's all about being patient and making sure that people have the time to get to know you. As you're doing that, you're also investing your time in getting to know, engage with and being really curious about all of those people, the people on your social media, the people in your email list and your Zoom calls. So that's step nine is really investing a lot of time in being in your community and engaging with and being curious about them. And I would, I keep a Trello board that consists of ideas that my audience give me. If I see people talking about a particular thing they're struggling with, or I see a particular wording that seems to be commonly used um, in my audience, I make a note of all of that um, so that I can make sure I use it to create exactly what they need in the membership and exactly what they want to hear on the podcast. And I really recommend doing that at this stage too. Step 10 is introducing your product or service regularly by asking for feedback as you develop and refine it. So I'm a big believer in not creating very much upfront. So as you know, one of the things which I launched the uh, membership um, with was my mindset course, which I'm running all the way through the month of July. 
Now, I've already delivered um, a large part of the course, but all I had written at the while I was doing the launch was the first module. I had the first module written because I wanted to deliver that live as part of the launch. Now, it wasn't until I delivered that live and got feedback from the first module that I started writing the second module. Now, obviously, I had an idea in my head of stuff that I could cover. I'd done my research, got my references and all of that sort of stuff in advance. But I didn't actually write any of the content until I could do so, having responded to feedback from the first module. And I really, really recommend that because it could be that you try and launch something and it flops. That happens. It's happened to me lots of times. Um, But the last thing you want is to have invested lots of time and money creating content that then doesn't get used. So don't do that. Create very little upfront and respond to feedback. And you can use your community to give you that feedback as you go along. So you'll notice if you're in the Do More Than Therapy Facebook group, I'm constantly, genuinely asking you questions about what things should be called, what you'd prefer as a downloadable. I even ask about things like fonts and colours because it helps people to A, know what you do because you're reminding them about it. B, feel involved and like they're genuinely co-creating things with you. And I think most of us would agree that's what we want. We want to be co-creating and co-constructing with people. Um, And it also helps people to trust you because they can see you as a real human being trying to do your best for them. So I think it's, it's so in line with our values as clinicians to work in that collaborative way. It can feel vulnerable because you will sometimes get people DMing you and this has happened to me and being like, I really don't like what you're doing. I don't like um, your design. I had one bloke and some of you might have seen this. um, I won't name it, but another social media group that I put my podcast um, into because the admins have very kindly allowed me to promote my podcast in their group because I asked them. So I definitely would reach out and ask them, by the way. Um, And he said that my... um, audiogram which is like a little graphic I create to go with the podcast looked like diarrhea (laughs) and he was really really rude frankly Um, but that was helpful it was helpful because not everyone likes that color it didn't hurt me personally you know I didn't create the color we all have different tastes in terms of what we like graphically but I was able to then have a conversation with him about you know what he didn't like what he would like um And just genuinely raise my profile a little bit because that got, you know, people could then see quite a big conversation going on. I'm sure some people listen to the podcast because they were just interested in looking at how I handled a fairly tricky conversation in that Facebook group. So all of that feedback that you get is useful in loads and loads of different ways. Um, Step 11 hold an event or a challenge, something that brings people together at the moment that you're ready to introduce your product or service and actually start selling it. So what I did for the Do More Than Therapy membership launch was I held an online summit or event in the Facebook group, which is where I got a few different speakers together to talk about things that I knew that my audience, based on all the feedback that I'd been receiving, wanted to know about. So we talked about mindset, we talked about pricing, we talked about workshops, how to run them online. 
Um, we talked about how to how to grow and develop warmth in Facebook communities. These were all things that I'd seen people talking about in the Facebook group or that people had emailed me with questions about. So I knew I was creating an event that people would want to go to. I then reached out to other people that had audiences that were similar to mine or that might benefit from being in my community as well so that when they advertised it organically to their communities that then brought more people into my community and that worked extremely well it's really collaborative helps you set up relationships that will be helpful to you throughout your business journey Um, So it's a really great way of advertising organically. And I actually didn't do paid advertising um, until right at the end when I had a video that I'd put organically on my Facebook page that I then decided to put a couple of quid behind um, to take out to some new people. Um, But I didn't do any other Facebook advertising at this point. I just focused on reaching people organically. So I talked about the event and the challenge in other people's Facebook groups whenever I could. Um, I talked about it to my existing audience. I did it via email marketing. You might remember if you were on the mailing list, you get lots of email reminders about it. Um, And I promoted it um, by commenting in other people's Facebook groups. Now, at this stage, I didn't do enough In my own launch debrief, what I've looked at is I didn't do enough of things like guesting on other people's podcasts and guest blog post writing. Um, I didn't do that because it wasn't possible. As you know, I was doing this launch during lockdown and I've got young children. So my ability to come and guest on other people's podcasts was pretty limited. Um, I couldn't promise that there wouldn't be a screaming baby in the background. Um, So you have to cut your cloth to fit your means I don't know if that's even the right, (laughs) I don't know if that's the right analogy. Um, But you know what I mean, you can only do what you can do. Um, But it is really good to do one thing well. And what I think I did do well was email and Facebook advertising for my event. We got lots of people attending live, we got lots more people that watched the replay. So I could kind of tell that that hit the mark that people really did want it. So as I said, I really recommend holding your event at the beginning of a set period when your cart, as the Americans call it, is going to be open, when people will have the opportunity to buy your product or book your service. Now, I recommend that you only have your product or service available for a set period the first time that you're launching it. This is for two reasons. Firstly, because I personally could not possibly administrate people coming into the membership all the way through the month. I just wouldn't be able to handle it. There's a lot of admin involved. There will be lots of technical difficulties. There'll be lots of things to iron out with people. You know, you'll get people sign up and then lose their um, login details and not be sure how to get back in. Um, Loads and loads of little admin tasks. But if you're running a private practice at the same time, which I know most of you are, you could get overwhelmed by that really fast if you have people just coming in all over the place. If you have it open for a set week, then everything ticks over in a set period of time. So I know, for example, that the people that joined on a two-week free trial will be coming to the end of that at the end of this week. I know that the people that joined on 28 days will be coming to an end 
will be coming to the end of that at the end of the month. So I can keep an eye that all of those things are working as they should be. And I only have to pay attention to them on set days. I can't even imagine how complicated it is when you have it on Evergreen where people can join at any time. Now, it probably will be, if you're anything like me, it probably will be your ambition to get it onto Evergreen where people can join at any time um, because that means that they can get their need met whenever they need it met. And that is ultimately my goal. Um, But it's not really possible for me until I've got a bit more of a team. So I think that's really important. Another thing which might be a bit more controversial for some people is that it helps people to make the decision to join if there is some scarcity, if they know that that is not going to be available forever. Um, Now, we could get into a whole big discussion about scarcity marketing and whether it's ethical and all the rest of it. And I think it is different if you're serving a clinical population to if you're serving people who are generally um, well and feeling resilient. But... I do think it's true that most of us really struggle to make the decision to part with money, even for a really good reason, um, if we think that it's an open-ended opportunity. And that doesn't mean that we don't need what's being offered. So, for example, if I was thinking about booking um, a coach, well, I did do this, I booked a coach. It helps me make the decision that when I spoke to her for a discovery call, she said, I need to know your answer by the end of the week. Now, I'm sure she had genuine reasons for that. I'm sure that her calendar was getting really busy and she needed to um, know whether she was going to be working with me or whether she could give that slot to somebody else by the end of that week. But it also really helped me to focus my mind and weigh up the pros and cons and make that decision. Whereas I suspect if she'd said, oh, just get back to me when you know, she probably would not have heard from me for quite a significant period of time and that would have held me back in my business and my life. So yeah, I think you will probably have experienced this with therapy clients too. If you leave it open-ended, often they don't get back to you. That doesn't necessarily mean that they don't need the therapy. It might just mean that it's dropped off the to-do list. Whereas if you say, I need to know by tomorrow morning, people usually will get back to you. It's one of the reasons that I think that private practices tend to get more and more successful as a snowball effect once you're fully booked. Because now I'm fully booked, I would say to somebody, I need to know by tomorrow because that slot is likely to get taken. Whereas in the early days, I'd be like, oh, let me know whenever you feel like it. Um... And often that would mean that I would lose them. So scarcity marketing, marketing, I know it's controversial, but I think there are a number of really good reasons to do it when you're starting out, even if that's not where you want to end up. Okay, step 13 is you need to show the people who have opted in at this point So the people that have attended your event or done your challenge or engaged with whatever it is that you created that was directly linked to your product and service, now you need to show them the benefits of joining your membership, joining your online course, or getting your product, whether that's a book or whatever it is. So this is where I would rely more on email marketing, but you can do it through socials as well. And it's about showing people testimonials, answering frequently asked questions, um, asking them questions and being genuinely open to their feedback, responding in person as much as you can to it. 
and reminding them about what you're offering, how it's going to help them. And as I said, you can do that through email marketing and through social media. And it is about being very, very present because there's a loss and there's a loss of marketing research about this and the psychology of it is so interesting. Um, but we know that people don't see everything that we put out on social media. The Facebook algorithm, for example, will only show your content to one to two percent of your audience to start with. Then if it gets likes and comments and shares, it will take it out to more people. But your initial post, if it doesn't get much um, interaction with it, hardly anyone's going to see it. And with your email inbox, um, because I've got software that allows me to see how many people have opened it, I can see that only about 40, maybe 50% sometimes of people open my emails about the Do More Than Therapy membership. Now, that is an incredibly good open rate. The standard open rate, you're considered to be doing very well if you get 25%. So if three quarters of people aren't opening that email, then it makes sense that you're going to need to send more than one email about your product or service. Now, I followed a framework developed by Janet Murray in her membership, which is the Build Your Online Audience membership, um, when I was writing my marketing emails. And I basically relied on the wisdom of many other marketing people to tell me how many emails to send. And it felt super uncomfortable because it feels like a lot. But I really, really recommend doing it because even though you will get a few people emailing you saying, oh my God, stop sending me so many emails. You will also get a lot of people emailing you saying, thank you so much for reminding me. I really wanted to do this, but it had dropped off my radar. And oh, it's so, I, I'm going to do a whole episode about email marketing and I'm going to get an expert in to talk to us about it because there are so many issues bound up with this. But I think this is a point where you need to remember your mission. You need to remember your values. And if part of your mission is to get this message out to as many people as possible and to help the people who really need it, you're going to have to put up with the discomfort of sending a lot of emails because it will be uncomfortable, but it is the number one way to get people to um, sign up. And if it's something that they need and you really believe in what you're offering, then ultimately that should be worth it. If you're not that sure about what you're offering, it might be that you need to reevaluate it. But most of the time, if you've got to this point, you probably are pretty sure that what you're offering is helpful. You've, you've created it, co-created it with your community. You know that you're offering something that they need. So it is just about putting up with the fear that people might judge you for sending too many emails um, and pressing send anyway. So final step, and I feel like a lot of you will be thinking, oh my gosh, this has been a lot of steps. But final step, step 14, evaluation. So what did you do that reached the most people? How many people became paying customers uh, who attended your event? Where did you lose people? These are all the kind of key questions you need to ask yourself so that when you do this again, you can make it even better, even more streamlined, and you can put some budget behind it to take it out to more people and be confident that that budget is only going on things that actually worked for you. So when I did this with the Do More Than Therapy membership launch, it became really clear to me that LinkedIn had worked really, really well. 
that my online event had worked really, really well, that my email marketing had worked really, really, really well, but that my paid Facebook advertising had not worked at all. So I know I I didn't put a lot of money into Facebook ads. Um, Perhaps that was part of the problem. I'm not sure. But what I've decided to do for my next launch is invest in getting an expert to look at my Facebook ads for me and to develop that strategy. Because I can see that every other part of the chain or part of the funnel, to use horrible marketing speak, worked. Um, It was ticking the right boxes all the way along. But what I wasn't able to do was reach that wider audience. And I believe that that wider audience is there and that I can reach them through Facebook ads. So I'm going to do that and I believe it's going to be worth the investment to pay somebody to look at it for me. But if I hadn't tested it myself and if I hadn't tested all the other parts um, of the launch sequence, then I, I don't think it would be worth making that investment yet. So before we go, a few things I wanted to say. So you will have noticed all the way through this that there are some key assets that you need in order to make this stuff work. As, by assets, I mean parts of your marketing puzzle which need to be in place and they need to be high quality. And those include things like email content, social media posts, social media images, Facebook ad copy, Google ad copy, your sales page, very important, and thank you pages for any downloads you create and for your sales page. So these are assets which I really recommend creating far in advance. So researching, um, getting some training or getting an expert in to help you to create really high quality assets um, well before you need them. So things like social media posts and ad copy and stuff like that, I would be creating those and testing them with my audience right from the beginning. um, Just to see what goes down well, whether people respond to it well, whether they like it. Stuff like your sales page, you probably won't be able to create that until you're a fair way through the process because your offer is not going to be nailed down in stone until you've received lots and lots of feedback um, and testimonials from the free stuff that you've put out there. So you're not going to be able to create that in full until the end, but you can be testing out bits of copy and creating the images for it right the way from the beginning. So what I do is I create a board in Trello and I track my progress in each of those things. So I know that these are the assets I'm going to need in my launch. So I try not to forget about them by putting them in Trello and making sure that I revisit them and see if I can add to them all the way through this process. Uh, You can use a simple spreadsheet for that. You could use something like Asana, which is another project management tool, just to say that there are ways of doing it outside of Trello. I just happen to love Trello. Um, So there's a lot of food for thought, I think, in this episode. And there's probably a lot of things where you've been like, right, so now I need to learn how to do a sales page. And now I need to learn how to do an email sequence. And there is a lot involved with it, but it can be really, really simple. 
And I think if you are listening and responding to feedback and writing in the language that your audience use, you won't go too far wrong. I know people that have launched things with no sales page. They've just given people their bank details and they've just talked to them one-on-one and they've had virtually no tech involvement whatsoever. If you're at the point where you've got very few people in your audience, you don't need to do something like send out automated emails using MailChimp. You can just do it through your Gmail if that's what you're comfortable with. But make your life as easy as you can. And if you've already got a private practice, you might already have a little bit of budget you can put behind it to make life easier and use something like email marketing software and outsource to get a landing page created for you. Um, It's just about meeting yourself where you're at and meeting your audience where you're at. So I really hope that this has been a useful overview for you. And I'm sure you're going to have loads of questions. So in the spirit of feedback, please do get in touch with me and ask me what you want to know so that I can get an expert in and talk in a lot more depth about any of those sticky areas that you're feeling stuck about already. Um, So you can contact me very easily through Facebook. I'm in the Do More Than Therapy group, um, which is just at Do More Than Therapy group on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Rosanna Gilderthorpe on there or on Instagram at Rosie Gilderthorpe. I'll put all my links in the show notes. Please, please, please do get in touch and let me know what in this launch sequence you want to know more about or what is getting you stuck at the moment. And I will make sure I create some podcasts to help you out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy.